Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week we'll be talking to people active in business and the economy about the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, owner of Recognition PR. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services and some are featured on this podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Guests, well, both of our guests today are down the line and we have Gillian Howard, an employment law specialist and the author of Secrets and Lies, Tales of an Employment Lawyer. And she's been quoted in some of the publicity materials as being a, a Rottweiler with a handbag. She certainly doesn't look like a Rottweiler. She looks like a very pleasant person. And we'll hear more about her book and her experiences in a moment. And we've also got Stephen Wright, Managing Director of Thorite, an air and fluid power specialist based in Bradford, Yorkshire. And later, my colleague Joss Havakin will be talking to Fergus Laird. Fergus is, uh, Fergus is from Naylor's Gavin Black and president of the Commercial uh, Property Network. And he'll be talking about his recent award successes and how the UK's commercial property market is faring. So first of all, let's welcome our guests down the line. Hello, Gillian. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Yeah, hello, Graham. Well, first of all, I'm going to start with Stephen, if that's all right, because we want a temperature check of business. And your business is over... 40 years old, is that right? How, how long no, has it been going? The business has actually been, uh, no, I've been in the business for 40 years. Uh, the business is actually, uh, dates from 1850. Oh, wow. So it's um, that old. Tell everyone yeah, what it does. Let's start with what the business yeah. does. So, so we, we're a distributor of compressed air and pneumatic products, but we also, a growing part of the business is actually our systems division, which builds equipment. Uh, so we're taking... We're taking people's problems and making them into solutions, essentially, in the um, compressed air, pneumatic and electric automation um, arena. So essentially, though, it, it involves an element of um, engineering, an yes. element of skilled innovation, an element yeah. of electrical knowledge, of course, uh, power. Yeah. And, and, and pneumatic knowledge. And pneumatic yes. knowledge. So, so yeah. it's quite a lot of specialism, quite a lot of engineering. So it's a, a, a good quality innovative firm that's obviously stayed on its uh, toes yes. throughout yeah, and, these years. And, and we continue to change. That's been kind of our ethos over the over the 170 odd years. We, we started as mill furnishers and then we've morphed to where we are at present. And we're, yeah, we're looking at what the next changes will be. You know, people have been using pneumatics, compressed air for, you know, 70, 80 years in industrial settings. That's kind of moving onwards to more electronically controlled or actually electronically actuated products and we're keen to stay with that flow but also adding on other products into our range that sit with our natural engineering space and and help our existing customer base and you employ well over 100 people yes yeah we employ about 135 people excellent that, that's over nine sites now uh, let's talk about the economy because um your business is still an sme business and yeah. uh obviously that makes it absolutely the core of the northern economy. It's where we want to see businesses grow in the north of England. Um, the government has got its policies on growth and the economy. It wants to reduce inflation, halve inflation by the end of the year, and it wants to get the economy growing. But at the same time, of course, halving inflation means sort of constraining growth, because if it isn't hurting, it isn't working. The Bank of England needs to put interest rates up. Bit of a dichotomy. How's it affecting you? Wait, the last couple of years have been interesting to say the least you know we've been gone through covid brexit supply chain issues now, now increased interest rates and it, it's all created quite a bumpy ride you know we, 
that's not to say there's not growth there, there is still a bit of growth but you've got to really work hard at it and you know over the last 12 18 months supply chain issues have been what i've started to describe as a, a whack-a-mole kind of scenario yeah. you, you end up with one problem you sort it and then you move on to the next one and it, it feels never-ending and I have to say our problems now seem to be our challenges seem to be around things which you might actually put back at Brexit again, getting products into the country speedily, whereas 12 months ago you couldn't work out whether that was a, a COVID or a Ukraine war or whatever type problem that the problems now we're sort of seeing seem to be around just sheer shipment issues of getting getting things in and creating a a dialogue with our customers to make sure that they're happy with what we're able to deliver is is really the challenge of the moment. And how are you feeling about staff and staffing and recruitment? Do you have because there are many businesses like yours that do have difficulties attracting skilled and yes, non-skilled and staff. Yes, that is still a big problem attracting quality staff, people with technical knowledge, people with the motivation, frankly, to actually to work in a fast-paced business like ourselves. And, and you know, it, it's. We, we, one of the classic engineering businesses where we've got an aging workforce and we're trying to backfill. You know, we've operated an apprenticeship scheme for the last 20 odd years whilst I've been running the business. And, you know, that, that helps us, but it doesn't, it doesn't create the, the full solution. We've got to have better educated people coming into, into business full stop. And, yeah, so and, I, and I would say just, you talked about government plans. One of the things that they keep sort of back railing on is industrial strategy. Yeah, you know, we, we had an industrial strategy that was canned and I know business organizations like Make UK are trying to push them to have an industrial strategy again. Absolutely. To, and uh, Make UK were on this program just a few weeks ago saying that they wanted the industrial strategy to be actually statutory. Yes, you can have, have a Royal Commission statutory yes. net zero, you can have a statutory industrial That's strategy. Right, yes. That was the argument yes. from Make UK. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that I've seen that paper. I think it's a really good paper. Whether that's the right way forward, I don't know. But having an industrial strategy would really be a, st a starting place to help manufacturing businesses grow and understand what the direction of growth should be. But you know what's best for your business, don't you? And, and yeah. clearly what is best is to have the right level of recruits and the starting point, the feedstock yeah. of, of what's coming through the door doesn't uh, always from manufacturers like yourself uh, suit you. You want people who, what, what kind of skills are missing from the feedstock that come through the door? Um, general industrial engineering skills in terms of yeah, the, the right sort of attitude to get things done, to focus on, on, on the job at hand rather than um, moving away onto other things, mm. I would say. Um, in terms of sales people is, is always been a challenge for ourselves. In getting the the right people to the door who have the technical knowledge, but actually have a sales skill to be actually translate a customer's need into a solution. I talk to a lot of businesses like your own, and one of the things that the successful businesses have is a plan. And you sound mm. like a man with a plan. I've yeah. got it jotted down here. It's a, I've not seen it in in uh, business recently. So you've launched a thirty by thirty campaign. Explain yeah. what that is. That, that, that's really to focus our, our staff on the, 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 we're about 21 million at present. So by 2030, we want to be 30 million. And it's creating this, starting the conversation and the steps to get us there in terms of, you know, what, what products do we need to add? What, what customers do we need to be focusing on? How do we create the right solutions? And that in creating a, a more granular 
step towards our targets and and saying and actually verbalizing that this is where we want to be that we're not standing still and we're doing stuff so in the last couple of years we've moved into a new headquarters here in bradford we've refreshed our website there we've refreshed all our branches in terms of the trade counters and the warehousing and the next big step is re uh, replacing our erp system that the, the the computer system that runs the business for us and, and this is leading to an increase because this 30 by 30 yeah. is to say to your staff it's a measurable target and your that's customers right. yes. that you're on a growth growth spurt and yeah. and i suppose that by by putting it as a measurable target uh numbers don't lie you're either going to meet it or you're not you actually are motivating people. Yes, that's right. And actually giving, giving them stepping stones to how we need to get there as well. Yeah, so say, you know, say, well, we're going to do this. You guys need to do this. We'll do this next, you know, and so on and so forth. Now, let's going to bring Gillian in. But before we bring her in, how do you find you've had 40 years in business? I've had 35 years in business. How mm. have you found the complexities of employment law and um, how it how it how it works for you as someone who manages and runs the business it just gets more and more complex you feel like you're having to step on glass all the time to navigate the right way through making sure that you're doing the right thing for the business and the right thing for your staff you know i, I get some of the stuff but some of it just feels overblown yeah we, we we talked about having freedom with brexit but frankly Britain was the worst people for gold plating EU legislation. Let's and we're bring... in danger of, in danger of doing that again. All right, that's a good point to bring. You're not being specific on anything, Stephen. Maybe no. you will be in a minute, but let's have a, yeah. let's bring Gillian in. But I don't want to set you up on this because I know, Gillian, you act for a small employer like Stephen or myself is equally likely to get your time and attention uh, as, as, a, as a disgruntled employee. Hold up your book. Let's see the book. You've got a new book out. I have. And there it is, Secrets and Lies, ta Tales of an Employment Lawyer. I can, it's got a Rottweiler with a handbag. <laughs> Great cover. Okay, well, let's start, start with uh, a little bit of background, Gillian. You've been doing this a long time. You went to Cambridge. You obviously uh, carved out a, a good education and career for yourself. Um, but how has employment law in your years practising changed? And it's changed dramatically. You know, employment protection legislation has been coming over the years, over the last 30, 40 years, actually. Um, and there are many more very important protections for employees at work. Those who have what are called protected characteristics, uh, transgender people, homosexuals, uh, women who take maternity leave, who, who get pregnant and take maternity leave um, for unfair dismissal. Um, all sorts of protections have been introduced into the legislation quite properly um, but if the employer behaves properly and respects the rights of employees rights don't exist on their own employees also have duties corresponding duties you know to work well to work honestly to work uh, studiously to be polite to do what they're told uh, to come to work when they should uh, when they can't, because let's say they have a disability, they have a duty to cooperate and try to work perhaps if they can from home uh, and try to come back to work as soon as they can. And um, it might be on reduced duties or reduced hours, but they do have duties as well as rights. But the law has really radically changed over the years. And there is now what is called 
employment protection legislation mm. that protects employees from bad employers doing bad things. Who does the job belong to? Is the job, as the, the role, the vacancy, that is the employers, isn't it, to choose within the context of the employment protection legislation who fills it, who's best for it? Well, yes and no. I'm sounding like a lawyer here. But I mean, first of all, the Redundancy Payments Act in the 1960s, in 1963, was first passed because the law recognised that if a man doesn't have money and therefore doesn't invest in property or buildings or, or businesses, then a workman invests in his job every year. That job becomes intrinsically more valuable to him and so or her. And so if a, an employer makes that employee redundant, they have a value which has to be paid for in that job. But you're right, within constrictions, within constraints, it is up to the employer to decide, as long as they don't discriminate, who they wish to choose to fill that role. And um, Stephen mentioned uh, things like the, the skills, the knowledge, the expertise, the qualities that are required both in technical terms and in sales terms. And therefore, it is for the employer to choose who is the best, not necessarily on paper either, because often in an interview, someone whose paper qualifications don't sound brilliant. They are brilliant. They've got the experience. They've got the wherewithal. They talk the talk. They've got a good reference from their last employer. And um, so, yes, it, it is up to the employer in, at the end of the day. Uh, it is their decision as to who they dismiss, uh, who, sorry, who they recruit and then who they dismiss. Yes. Now, um, years ago uh, in the early 90s, a lot of the debate around employment law was about things like the social chapter and things like uh, rights to 48-hour working and so on and so forth, the cost of employment law. Now it's about uh, the protection of employees in the context of uh, what used to be regarded as cultural, but now these cultural issues are enshrined in law. And, and so sometimes the first man trap for an employer, particularly a small employer, without the uh, access to trained HR professionals on the site, uh, is who do you interview and who do you select for interview? And, and the, the temptation to try and create a rainbow coalition of candidates from which one chooses. Well, it is important. I mean, if you're if you run a business and you're recruiting people, at the very least, you can go to Google and you can get some information about what it would be if you discriminated and the best way to allow equal opportunities. And equal opportunities doesn't mean the same opportunities because people who have in the past been discriminated against need a bit of a leg up in order to get an equal opportunity. And so, you know, employers need to understand that ignorance is no excuse um, and it is incumbent upon them to make sure that everybody has an equal opportunity to go for a job, be, re be interviewed for a job and get the job if they're the right and good person. Now, the book contains a lot of your stories, doesn't it? Your favourite stories uh, mm -hmm. from uh, your many years in practice. Um, now, do stories and case law actually inform you in your day-to-day -day practice now? Is, 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 is the case law fundamental to actually taking things forward? Oh, yes. I mean, the, the, 
a number, quite a number of my cases went to tribunal and some went to the Employment Appeal Tribunal and some went to the Court of Appeal. Uh, and they lay down the decisions that the more junior courts have to follow and employers and employees have to follow. So very much so, they, they create the law. We have, you know, a system here of common law as well as statutory law. And the common law is where the courts make the law as they go along. Now, you will have uh, a lot of cases that you've worked on, which are, uh, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute to, to pick a few favourites. But I do know that you also do a lot of pro bono work, don't you? Because you, you've, you've had a good career and I know you... What kind of, uh, organ kind of organisation or person would you do pro bono work for? I've always done pro bono work, right from the beginning. I always believed that the underdog should be protected, should be represented. So if someone comes to me with a case, and I think they've got a, a case that's worth winning, um, I will certainly act for them pro bono if they can't afford me. I will certainly give them advice, particularly if I don't think they've got much of a case. If they think they're, you know, they have a case and they haven't, yeah. I will try to explain why I don't think they have a very good case. Uh, and I act for charities. I act for a number of charities, and I act act for a number of schools, mainly faith schools. I act for a lovely Catholic school. Um, so anyone really who can't afford me. And I feel they deserve to have representation. Um, I, that, I they're listening to you talking about charities, because charities are employers, and oh, they yeah. end up quite often, particularly smaller charities, embroiled in employment issues that came about through, yeah, through all sorts of reasons yeah. that weren't planned. Yes, absolutely. Charities, some charities employ a huge number of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you say, the smaller ones without the HR, the human resources, uh, ability, resources, uh, and knowledge and expertise often make mistakes through ignorance. Uh, they don't know what they should have done. Uh, and so I try and help them. Now, tell us about your most celebrated case and also the case you're most proud of. Oh, gosh. Well, I suppose the most celebrated case, I would say, would be the man that I acted for against an investment bank. He was a black man. This was in the 70s. Mm. Uh, he was absolutely brilliant. Uh, he went up to be uh, an equity partner. Uh, he wasn't made an equity partner. In fact, he then put in a grievance about not only racist things that were said to him, but also the fact that he didn't make equity partnership. And he was dismissed. Um, we were offered a staggering sum of money in those days. Well, it still is, £250,000. Oh, it is, yeah. Um, he said he was a trader by, by nature, you know, by, by profession. He said, no way, Gillian, I'm not accepting that. And I wrote him a letter to say, even if we win, and it's a big if, you won't get anything like £250,000 when we, you know, if we win. Well, we did win. I managed to trap his boss into admitting what he'd said, which was that uh, the part of the world where he would have been working, uh, they wouldn't accept a black man at, at a partnership level. Um, and the tribunal said to my client, well, how much have you lost not being an equity partner? He said, well, I would have stayed for five years. Um, last year, the equity partners earned £2 million. So the judge said, well, five times two is ten. I'm awarding you £10 million. <laughs> As we walked out of the tribunal, I said, you see, I was absolutely right. You didn't get anything like £2 <laughs> So, I mean, I'm quite, I'm very proud of that. I suppose I'm also proud of a, 
of Abigail's tale. Now, Abigail was, is, uh, I'm still in touch with her, an absolutely wonderful girl. She's incredibly well, um, she's experienced, she's very well educated, she's a professional lady. And she was really, really badly sexually harassed at work in the most disgusting and vile way. And unfortunately, the bank that she worked for did not do a very good or thorough job. They uh, dismissed her grievance. We issued proceedings in the tribunal. Uh, we sued both the employer and the man because in discrimination terms, the perpetrator is also personally liable, as well as the employer who is vicariously liable. Anyway, we... Um, in cross-examination, he got himself uh, rather tied up, or rather maybe I, I bullied him a little bit, uh, to the point where he got up and walked out of the tribunal and was never seen again. The tribunal, of course, then found against him and the bank. My client luckily hadn't had to leave. She had gone on sick leave. She had a wonderful new female boss. She went back to work. Within two weeks, she was promoted. She is now a mentor for women in the workplace, new, newly recruited women and women who have problems like she had. And I must just say that for part of the compensation that she won, which was quite a lot of money, she donated that to the Imperial Cancer Research Fund, as it was, Cancer Research yeah. UK now, in memory of my mother who died very young of cancer. And she is an amazing woman. Well, Julian, both of those stories are worth relating and I'm so glad you did and I'm so glad that you, you are fighting for the underdog. Sometimes the underdog, this is a business podcast, is a smaller business as yeah, well and that's absolutely. obvious uh, from what you've said and I, I hope your book goes very well. Give it, Hold it up one more time and I'll read it out for people listening. The book is called Secrets of an Employment Lawyer and it's Gillian Howard. Thank you very much indeed and, and, and also uh, thank you to uh, my other guest uh, from uh, Thorite, Stephen. Thank you for joining me. And, uh, and now let's turn to something different. My colleague Josh Havakin has been catching up with Fergus Laird, who is uh, involved in commercial property. Let's see how he has to, uh, what he has to say. Thank you, Graham. This week, I'm joined by Fergus Laird. He's a partner at the independent commercial property consultancy, Nailers Gavin Black, and also the president of the Commercial Property Network. Hello, Fergus. Hi there. How are you doing? Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, so straight away, I just want to congratulate you on winning an amazing nine co-star awards. Can you tell us a little bit about these awards and some of the projects that have got you this amazing accolade? Uh, I certainly can. Yeah, um, I think as a business, we we were fortunate to to take away um, a, a few awards. Um, they, I think, emphasise our position in the region uh, as as being one of the strongest regional players um, and um, many of our clients will use us because we are exactly that, we're regional um, so we can offer expert advice on the North East and most of our team here have been around in the North East for some time so we know the market particularly well. Excellent, well as you've already said you know you're very well known in the North East that's how you're getting all you know access to these off-market deals that other people don't necessarily um you know aren't aware of but you're also the president of the commercial property network for our viewers and listeners who don't know what that is can you just tell us a little bit about it yeah um it's actually uh quite a historic organization now it started in 1963 
uh, as property agents independent. Um, and it was very much a, a, a social network. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the modern way has, has overtaken a lot of what it did. But back in the day, it would be a network of firms, Sanderson Town in Gilbert, as was in, in Newcastle, were the members for, for the North East. Um, mm -hmm. At that time, Allsops in London, who are now a big auction house, they were members at that time. Uh, and it was very much a sort of social networking event where, where people would share ideas um, across the whole of the UK. So all the, the membership is made up of independent firms, which is why Allsops and Sanderson's are no longer members. So firms like ours that are... Uh, uh, where the partners uh, or, or the workforce own the business, mm -hmm. not owned by shareholders. Uh, we've been in the northeast, and you know we're just in the northeast uh, for 30, 40 years. Um, and it's similar firms across the whole of the UK. So we've got this depth of understanding of our marketplace. But it means that if one of my clients phones me up and says, "Oh, I've got this shop in Oakhampton." Um, that I need a building survey on, we can actually say, yeah, we can help you. And, mm -hmm. and we, we, we have access to firms that we can trust in all parts of the, the United Kingdom, including Belfast and, and Scotland, Glasgow and Edinburgh, um, where, where, where we can refer clients. So it, 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 it's a network, um, not for profit, uh, and, and has its roots in sort of, social networking but it's a bit more than that now so having so many firms across the whole of the uk and being the president of the organization you probably have a better understanding than most of how commercial property is performing across the country what are your members saying is the differences across the country yeah definitely it's very interesting actually you know so our sort of southeast members um you know i think they, they'll always do fairly well Mm -hmm. um, very strong. Our members for the Southwest, Vickery Holman, um, they they are by far and away the strongest um, sort of firm of surveyors in the Southwest. So again, they're they're busy because mm -hmm. that they are. What's really interesting is um, comparing, say, us neighbours Gavin Black in Newcastle with uh, um, SK Real Estate in Liverpool. Liverpool and Newcastle are quite similar um, in, in terms of economic uh, demographic and, and the way we're performing. So, we're, you know, we're comparing with them and then our Manchester members may be comparing more with the London market. But um, we, we are seeing across the board in what I do in investment at the minute, the market's fairly static. That just means that it's not moving in either direction, which is a problem. Fergus, I, I'm really sorry we're, we're out of time now, so I'm going to have no to worries. go back to Graham. but thank you very much for your time. Um, and back to you, Graham. Thank you. Thank you, Josh, and thank you, Fergus Laird, as well. Um, now, if you'd like to take part in our Northern Business Podcast, or if you know anyone who will be a great guest, we're planning our autumn series now, and we'll be uh, presenting this kind of interview uh, throughout the whole of the period from September to Christmas. So do get in touch with me, Graham Robb, at LinkedIn uh, using the LinkedIn mail or at Recognition PR. 
Don't forget also to like uh, or subscribe to us on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast channels. We'll be back at the same time next week.